Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of March. The team is in the Drakensberg this week for the Biz News Conference, or BNC3 as we like to call it. We're going to be providing you with a wide variety of interviews and perspectives, coupled, of course, with all the international business news that you need to know from our partner, the Financial Times. Let's get to your news headlines. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. The Zondo Commission of Inquiry into State Capture has said that there is reason to believe that former President Jacob Zuma, the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy, Gwede Mantashe, and former Minister Nomvula Mokonyane have a case to answer for corruption. The third instalment of the State Capture Report found that all three and the governing ANC allegedly benefited financially from dealings with a security company in exchange for government tenders and favours. The report says that there were reasonable grounds to suspect that the former president was in breach of his obligations as president under the constitution. Zuma rejected the report. People who have family members stuck in the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine joined the Ukrainian Association of South Africa in a picket outside the offices of the Department of International Relations and Cooperations in Pretoria and Cape Town this week. The groups protested against the South African government's failure to strongly condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This follows the government's attempts earlier this week to patch up relations with Russia following the Minister of International Relations calling for Russian withdrawal from Ukraine. ESCOM is naming and shaming some of its biggest defaulters, adding the city of Ekuruleni to the list over a reported 544 million rand owed. The city said that it has not missed any of its arranged payments, but ESCOM says it failed to honour an agreement to settle the debt fully. The city has now been slapped with hefty penalty fees on top of what it already owes. ESCOM says it will be continuing its campaign to get its debtors to pay up, targeting other municipalities in Gauteng, such as Mfuleni and the West Rand. Similar campaigns have been executed by some key municipalities in the province, with the city of Joburg and the city of Chwane cutting off defaulters. And now it's on to my colleague Justin for the market report. The JSE All Share Index continues to march higher, trading at 77,600. In the price action, commodity counters continue to soar as investors remain cognizant of the significance of the geopolitical risks at play, whilst Barlow World, which generates around 20% of its revenues in Russia, continues to plummet. The Jelta crypto basket is up 3% on the day. In the currency markets, the rand is weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 47 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 63 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 19 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,930 an ounce. A Kruger rand will put you back around 31,000 rand. Brent crude is trading at a staggering $112 a barrel. The petrol price increases looming are going to materially impact both consumers and businesses. It's fast in your seatbelts time. And Bitcoin is flat at 680,000 rand. 
and the financial news fashion group retailer Woolworths says tough trading conditions and lockdowns in Australia weighed on revenue in the first half of its 2022 year, but it is proceeding with a dividend after restructuring efforts left it with a net cash pile. Group turnover and concessions sales for the 26 weeks ending December 26 decreased by 2% to 42 billion rand, with headline earnings falling 35% to 1.6 billion rand. Woolworths still struggled with a revenue fall for its Australian businesses as it was unable to trade in stores representing 70% of the group's brick-and-mortar sales for more than three months. And later in the program, the end of an era as PSG marks its intention to delist from the JSC and unbundle the lion's share of its remaining assets to shareholders. Another sad day for corporate South Africa. CEO Pete Mouton unpacks the rationale for such a significant transaction in a detailed investor presentation. Wayne Duvenage, the uh, head of the organization Undoing Tax Abuse, it's good to chat to you at the Business Conference. You've given a very riveting state capture summary, and I was interested in the last portion mm. um, where you were asked about private prosecutions. Yeah. A lot of pressure is being put on the National Prosecuting Authority. Mm. Uh, Andrea Johnson has just come in. Uh, Hermione Cronier is leaving us. Shamalaba Toy is under the hammer. Mm. When are we going to see significant politicians and those with political influence in orange overalls? It just isn't happening fast enough. The notion of private prosecutions, it could be a dangerous proposition because everybody can be privately prosecuted. Is that what you were getting at? Yes. Um, The notion and the idea is good, but only if it's in the right hands. Uh, Private prosecutions can then be bought by anyone. And uh, just think about uh, it is going to be the people with money because court cases are very costly. Uh, and think of who has money, and a lot of corrupt people have money, and they will keep innocent people tied up in very expensive lawsuits and court cases if they're allowed to bring private prosecutions. So that's the one uh, area. It has to be granted to you by the NPA, and only on the basis that they don't believe there's a credible case. They can't grant private prosecutions because they're too busy. So they've got to apply their minds, and I think that law is strong, and it's the right way to have it, and we shouldn't try and tamper with that and allow allow private prosecutions to be uh, uh, um, become uh, willy-nilly and available for everybody. Well, you, I, I think it was either yourself or it was, <laughs> it was Helen Ziller who made the point that the capacity of the National Prosecuting Authority has been decimated yeah. to the point where certain junior prosecutors mm. are unable to write up indictments. Yeah. And there's so much pressure on them and the dots are there, but joining the dots is the problem. And y- what you spoke about today was if in Kosozana Glumini Zuma, if David Mabuza had sided with NDZ mm. in Nazarek 2017, there may never have been, or not in its current form that yeah. it's unfolding at least, this sort of Zondo commission and, and its findings. Yeah. How, how close did we come to that precipice? Very close, very close. And, you know, if, if Jacob Zuma didn't uh, do the deal with the devil, so to speak, because the last person you do want to rule this country is the, is the uh, Deputy President, David Mabuza. Uh, but I guess this is what politics is all about. There's an agenda there. And, uh, you know, Cyril's probably the best of a bad bunch. Doesn't make him right or the best president uh, that we should have for this country. But just imagine... 
uh, if, if Susanna Dleminizuma was in power with her ex-husband in the background, uh, still pulling the strings, um, no real robust leadership uh, that would have changed uh, this Zondo process that would have put the NPA into a space, even though it's not working as fast as it should, but it is going in the right direction, uh, we would be would be failed state by now. You know, I remember the Guptas uh, handing over a check of several hundred thousand rand to Nkosuzana Glumini Zuma. I can't give you the exact year, but they had voted her, and, and this was the Gupta Media Enterprise, had voted her the South African of the year. Mm. <laughs> Maybe they knew something we didn't back then, that they were already allowing, uh, laying the groundwork for for when Madam NDZ became president. Yeah. But interestingly, they also named Tulimaransela uh, South African of the Year in, in previous years. Mm. So, yes. Well, they had to because they had to be seen to be doing things that, uh, you know, was not one sided. I wanted to ask about the inception of the opposition to Urban Tolling Alliance. Mm. You have reinvented <coughs> yourselves as the organization undoing tax abuse. Are you looking forward to a day when you can close your doors? Because well, essentially, yes. essentially <coughs> you exist because of bad governance. Of bad governance. Yeah. Yeah. Are you hoping you can work your way out of a job? Yeah. If I would wish for nothing more that we never had to exist because government is being run properly. So we don't do this because um, because we uh, wanted to set up a new business. This is not a venture. This is a necessity. And this is an organization filled with passionate people, activists, by the way, specialists, uh, professionals, um, that, uh, that, that, that believe in the same thing. We've got to do this work. I would want to be in the corporate world. I would want to... There's no... There's no um, shareholding for me in a non-profit company. Uh, there's no wealth building here. This is about um, doing work that has to be done and to build a team who feel the same way. Uh, so, yeah, the, you know, if we didn't exist, I'd be happy for the right reasons. The 2024 general election, mm. it's Helen Ziller's belief that the ANC will drop below 50%, and then it is a question of who they decide to partner with. Yeah. Whether and she's under the impression that the decision will be between an EFF left-leaning mm -hmm. uh, coalition partner and the the Democratic um, or the, the Democratic Alliance on the right, so to mm -hmm. speak, center right. Um, are you looking forward to twenty twenty four and all the shenanigans that could bring? Because the ANC is still going to be the majority partner in this country. Helen Zilla says. Their predictions are they drop below 50%. What do you see playing out in 2024? Yeah, I, I think they will drop below 20, uh, 50%. Um, and here's the nub, though. If we can get more people to the voting polls, um, they will drop even further. And that's where she talks about 45% and maybe even less. Uh, what you saw in the last local elections was that all, uh, of all the people that were could have voted, in other words, if, if people just registered as well, Less than 40%, uh, around about 40%, I think 43% of people voted, that could have voted if they'd have gone and registered. And, and I think it's a bit higher, only 60% uh, of registered voters voted. I mean, that's a sad situation. And, and what's also interesting about that is that you'd expect that, well, as the voter turnout dropped because of this less choice, 
the EFF's portion would have grown because as populists and their party base is going to, they're going to try and get them out to vote. And they never grew. So they also lost supporters. So I think what we're seeing is quite exciting, especially in look at Joburg, <coughs> look at Ikarileni, look what nearly happened in Etiquene, where um, <laughs> the DA rules and, they, and the ANC has 45% uh, or more. They've got the largest... Uh, 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 they are the majority in those, but not over 50%. So how is it that the DA is running cities where the ANC has a higher uh, election result? And it's because of these coalitions. Very interesting space. And you could find that a 45% ANC in the next elections with a DA leader. Think about it. That's what's happening in, 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 in some of these big cities. Because... They get enough support from, 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 from all the other parties. And it really is going to be interesting. What we need to do is get as much people to vote and to start seeing uh, what their options are. This notion that, well, nothing really appeals to me, so I shouldn't vote, oh, I'm not going to vote, is a sad one. What you need to start doing, uh, the public, is voting strategically. And I think Arta is going to play, although we, we've got to stay out of politics, but we've got to change this country at the same time is to get people to realize that, you know, we fought hard for this democracy. To not vote is a sin. Mm. It's wrong. And even if the choices aren't there, vote strategically. Vote for the least bad option. Mm. That's it. And whether it's one of the smaller parties or not, just vote. Because if everybody voted, then you get the true picture of what we want. And, and, and I think what we can, we can hear when uh, Helen Ziller was saying this morning, is that um, I think more and more people are starting to realise uh, that we've got to fix this country because we've got too much to lose. Speaking of bad options or the least bad option, I want to, to end off this interview with what on earth is going on with e-tolls you had for Kilo and Balula? If, if I had a rand for every time that they said they were going to make an announcement, a mm. final announcement or pronouncement about e-tolls, we could have paid off e-tolling by now yeah. and paid off all the costs of the infrastructure. Do we have a definitive answer on what's going on? Look, they've come to the realisation now, um, or some time ago, that they can't do anything about enforcement. They know that. Um, and it would, be, it would be suicide to do so. So if you can't enforce a policy and your, and your buy-in rate or your compliance rate is, is on a user pay scheme is sitting at 15%, 85% of people not paying, then um, it's a lost cause policy. It's a lost cause uh, 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 system that, that, that they've got or scheme. And we just cannot understand why they haven't made the decision. Now, the decision is not just to say, oh, we, we're going to stop e-tolling. You have to undo and go back and change the law which declared the Gauteng Freeway roads as tolled roads. You need to undo that. So you've got, And that's not difficult to do. But something just keeps telling me in the back of my head, well, obviously the 50 to 60 million rand that is coming through still instead of the 300 million that they're wanting means something to somebody. The ANC is making money out of this somehow, some way. Otherwise, with the amount of opposition to it, it would have been dismantled a long time ago. So are you saying that something keeps nagging, tugging yeah. at you to say the ANC, somebody is somehow making money out of this? In the decision-making space, uh, smell the rat. It smells, it stinks. We have asked questions in the past. We've picked up 
contracts that were signed before the scheme started, 10 million rand, uh, went into into spaces which they can't explain. Uh, they haven't come back. Uh, Sanral don't want to explain what these monies were paid for. And the big telling thing for us was the contract, the ETC contract, was tendered and Nazir Ali in his presentations told uh, Gauteng government that they got that contract at 6.4 billion rand for the five-year period. Lo and behold, we get the copy of the contract and signed at 9.8 billion rand. And so you can see, well, why do people get a contract that's X a massive percentage higher than what it was that you told us it was won at? That's corruption. There's no other explanation for that. That is outright corruption and and what was in their favor was ETC, uh, Cups Traficom, the main shareholder, the major shareholder is an Austrian base, it's overseas. So what better way to get money out of the country than to do it through the ETOL scheme? Wayne, thank you for the work that you and Arta do, and uh, thanks for your insights today. Thank you, Mark. David Bacher, Chief Investment Officer of Corian Capital. David, we're missing you at the conference. I've got no doubt we'll be seeing you here in September. However, someone has to keep the economy going. That would be the team at Corian Capital, who besides manage an array of funds, publish an informative summary of asset class and fund performance returns each month suitable for any level of investors. Strategists such as Magnus Haystick have described the Corian Capital Report as prescribed reading, and that report can be found on Corian Capital's website or biznews.com. David, what was the average South African investor's performance like in February? Thanks, Justin. Uh, well, you know, despite the geopolitical developments over the, the past month, that really meant that uh, there was uh, risk assets were under pressure. Um, we believe at, at Corian that most South African savers should be smiling when they read the evaluation statements this month. And this is primarily due to South African equities having another really positive month and uh, significantly outperforming its peers. Um, it's pleasing to note that in dollar terms, South African equities outperform global equities by around 7%. And if you look at the last three months, that level of outperformance versus world equity markets is, is over 20%. So South African investors should be happy it was uh, a good month uh, despite everything that's happening on, on the political side. David, just unpack that a bit further. What are the reasons or the explanation for this level of recent outperformance versus our global counterparts? Oh, good question. Um, you know, at Korean, we believe that the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, actually provides a more sustainable backdrop to, to some of our key exports. Uh, South Africa, you know, our big exporters of platinum, palladium, gold, coal, and these commodities are reaching new highs. Um, and that provides a very uh, favorable fiscal uh, situation um, and, and probably it's going to be better for longer. And that certainly provide some underpin not only for domestic equities but for potentially for local bonds and the rand so you know on a relative basis you know south africa doesn't look like such a terrible place when when one scans the rest of the map of the world and and in addition to that you know i think we entered this uh crisis uh, so to speak 
uh, with significantly more favorable valuations. At Corian, you know, we do have a focus on valuations over the long term. So, you know, uh, buying assets at, at cheaper prices uh, certainly uh, helps South African investors. The dogs of the market yet again, NASPIS and Process. How big are these shares in the context of the South African equity market at the moment? Justin, it's very material. If you, if you combine the two shares, their weighting in the all share index is around 10%. Um, when Corian looked at the holdings of the general equity funds, I mean, our, our analysis showed that roughly 75% of funds had exposure of 3% or more, and about 40% had an overweight position. So in other words, more than 10%. So bottom line, it's material. It's a material weighting. Um, it probably contributed to a detraction about 2% to the All Share Index last month, which really goes to show how well resources did to actually get the All Share Index to a positive February return of, of about 3%. David, you mentioned the geopolitical risks. Do any South African funds have any big exposure towards Russia and Ukraine? I don't think there, there's anything uh, you know that, that surprised us. Uh, if you look at the Russian exposure to the, the emerging market index, it is only around 2%. So in terms of a, like the global equity markets or country world index, it is a negligible exposure. So you know, at the end of last year, um, there were about 15 funds that had exposure to Russia of, of more than 3%. Um, and even those funds, the majority of those 15 funds were, were funds that were aggressive of nature, had a mandate to invest in frontier markets, emerging markets. So, um, you know, you shouldn't be too surprised that they had exposure to, to the Russian equity uh, markets. Um, but, you know, in the greater scheme of things, it's not a material um, exposure that investors uh, will, will feel the brunt of. Which funds particularly stood out for you performance-wise in the month of February? So obviously, you, given what I, I said previously, there were two things that you had to get right last month. You had to be overweight resources, precious metals, and underweight NASPAS. Um, so generally, the funds that did really, really well last month were the high-dividend-focused funds, uh, the quality funds, um, which, you know, due to the, the high nature of resource dividend paying com companies. I mean, we saw last month Amplat having a, a special dividend of about 80 billion rand. Those funds that are focusing on resource shares, paying those dividends, uh, did, did really well. We like to look into the future. Looking forward, where are you investing your money at this point? So I think things haven't really changed there, Justin. Um, you know, it is a volatile environment, uh, and you know, at Corin, we we think you have an advantage to being nimble. So, from every given week, you got to see what lies in front of you. Um, but looking long term, uh, we still think that uh, in the context of risk and return, South African bonds are, are attractive. They are providing you with a real return of about four um, percent, and in the context of of, of a low yielding world. You know, 4% is something that we think uh, investors should be pleased about. Earlier this morning, released quite a detailed cautionary um, on a fairly significant transaction in the history um, of PSG.
I'm now going to take us through the slides to give more context to where we, how we ended up um, in this position. So I will talk about PSG Group, um, investment holding companies in general. Uh, then we'll go on to the proposed transaction. And then afterwards we have a chance for questions. On the email, on the sense that went out, there is an email address if you, so lo if you want to put some of your questions to us already. But after the presentation, we'll have about a minute's pause and then we'll start dealing with the questions. So PSG Group, we were founded in November 95 by Yanni Maton and Chris Otto. The share was trading at just 36 cents at the outset. PSG's dream originally was to build a financial services conglomerate and through innovative transactions we largely achieved that goal by the early 2000s. When the A2 banking crisis hit, um, we restructured the group to resemble what it is today, i.e. investment holding company. We've always had it as our mantra to do what is best for shareholders. And over the past 26 years, we've been part of creating great businesses, including Kiro, Consult, Capitec, and many others, providing them with strategic input and capital. A significant part of our DNA has always been to appoint excellent management and empowering them to do the right thing to build the business. Yannick coined the phrase, ultimate empowerment. And we listed the business because we believed the companies would perform better in front of the spotlight than at the back of the stage. We called this the Usain Bolt effect. Through the years, we have listed more than 15 companies in which we held a significant stake. However, in time, business regulations and investor sentiment of preference change, and management teams should be able to adapt. I've been quite vocal in the past about the ever-increasing red tape in the listed space and the benefits that especially investment holding companies get are negated by the ever-increasing regulations. Our investment model has fallen out of favour, uh, not only in South Africa, but globally. And the discounts that you see in listed companies negates one of the biggest benefits of being listed, i.e. to raise capital from the market. So we cannot use script to buy businesses, neither can we raise equity funding to buy businesses for cash. We've seen it over the last couple of years where investors to prefer investing into private equity funds or investing directly in the companies of their choice. This might change in years to come, but for now in the foreseeable future, it is the, re uh, the reality. Initially, when we invested, the companies benefit from what we call the big brother effect. But once they come more mature, operate efficiently and are well capitalized, they are penalized from a JSE index perspective as their trading liquidity is impaired because of their small free float, and maybe they aren't included in indices. 
BSG Group's total return since 2010 when the current management took over has been 28% and since inception it's been 38%. I might add it's not been the easiest trading condition since 2010 um, as we've had extremely low growth in South Africa with the last couple of years with the effects of COVID hitting us. Our primary goal and we've been unashamedly about this, is to maximize shareholder value. But we've been trading at a 30% discount for several years now. And two years ago, um, we unbundled our stake in Capitec, creating about 21 billion for shareholders. But still, PSG trades at a 30%, approximate 30% discount to its sum of the parts. On this slide, it's fairly busy. I'm not going to go into detail too much about it. But you can see in February 2020, when we still held the Capitec stake, we were trading at a 32.5% discount. Uh, currently, post the unbundling, we are still trading at its approximately 32% discount, even though the portfolio has quite grown quite nicely the last year from 94 Rand to 122 Rand per share. Just generally on investment holding companies. This slide details the major investment holding companies listed on the JSE. You can see that the trend has been downwards over the last five years with the average discount of these companies sitting at approximately 41% with our self-trading uh, just over 30%. After years of investor meetings, um, I've gathered the following as to why investment holding companies are trading at a discount. Number one, investors don't like the fact that investment holding companies have permanent capital. There is an inherent tax trap in investment holding companies. Some of the investment holding companies have made poor investment decisions and I think this builds out to the sentiment of other investment holding companies. The same goes for excessive fee structures where some of the investment holding companies charge excessive to manage their portfolios and this spills over into the general sentiment and then too many listed entry points. I believe, I'll give PSG a score on this, you might differ with it, but this is our opinion as management. On permanent capital, I give us a green. Over the years, we've returned 6.2 billion in dividends, 0.7 billion in special dividends, and as I've already alluded to, Capitec was recently unbundled, creating 21 billion for shareholders. The tax trap, unfortunately, is a red. Inherently, at the moment, if we had to sell all the assets at market value, or the current value, there would be 3.3 billion CGT payable, which is a 13% reduction in the sum of the parts. If this is then distributed in the form of a dividend to shareholders, there's an additional 20% deduction to the ultimate shareholder. Poor investment decisions. Again, I don't think we can be faulted for this. I've already alluded to the returns we've given shareholders 
both since the current management have taken over and since inception. Excessive fee structures. Again, the market cannot say we've charged excessively. Currently, and the latest figure is that um, the operating costs of PSG Group relative to the sum of the parts and the market cap is approximately 0.1%. That is significantly lower than what people charge in private equity funds or in unit trusts. Too many listed points. Historically, it's unfortunately been part of our DNA and 91% um, of our portfolio is enlisted investments. So unfortunately, I score us a red there. There is, however, investment holding company discount dilemma. Once you start trading at a discount, and I've alluded to this already, uh, when I said the key rationale to be listed is access to capital markets. Investment holding companies do not get advertisement benefit from being listed. It means that if we go into the market and uh, we raise equity of 100 Rand, the next day it's worth 70. Um, or we can raise equity via a rights issue which will be a severe, severe dilution for shareholders not following uh, their rights. So effectively, the equity capital markets are closed to us. The result is that going forward, you have to manage your portfolio more conservatively. We've estimated that to be able to play a key role going forward, we would need to retain a cash buffer of between 15 and 20% of the portfolio, which is either cash or funding lines to be able to support the underlying portfolio. As we all know, the returns on cash are lower yielding and should reduce the returns of PSG going forward. You become tentative to make new investments because once the cash is investments, you cannot get access to new cash. So inactivity makes the business unexciting. The same goes for dividends. Investment holding companies become loath to pay dividends because once you've paid the cash to shareholders, you cannot get it back again. This reinforces the shareholders' irritation with the fact that investment holding companies sit with permanent capital. And if you take all this combined, it reinforces the discount, making a vicious circle of trading at a discount. I've talked about the tax trap. Rightly or long, wrongly, investment holding companies have significant challenge and the market is discounting them severely. If you just go for a scenario where PSG sells all its shares and distribute the cash proceeds to shareholders, we will see the following. The current sum of the parts as published is 25.5 billion. If we had to sell everything, there would be 3.3 billion of CGT and then on distribution of the dividends, another 4.4 billion would be paid. If you focus on a per share basis, 
the 122 goes down all the way to 85 Rand per share. And this is approximately the price at which PSG group, group trades. So there is a significant argument to be made that investment holding companies trade at such large discounts as a result of the tax trap. Okay, so we do not believe running a conservative portfolio is very interesting for management nor do we think it's in the best interest of shareholders. At every single meeting I have had with the investor community over the last five years, a significant portion of the discussion dealt with value unlocking strategies and what are we planning to do. Those of you who've logged into our AGM and investor presentations will know a lot of the questions deal with this. We have considered all options, from large share buybacks to buying out the minorities of the underlying investments. Simply put, share buybacks only have a re relatively small impact on the sum of the parts. For every billion we invest, we only increase the sum of the parts by approximately 3%. And then the cash is gone and the discount is likely to open up again. And it's simply too expensive for us to take the underlying investments private as that would need to be done at a premium. So here with the proposed transaction. BSG is proposing the following transaction. We will unbundle our stakes in Consult, Kiro, CANS, Carpagri and 25.1% in Stadio to our shareholders. Thereafter, PSG will repurchase the shares of all shareholders except management and the founders, for the moment we call them the remaining shareholders, for 23 Rand per share in cash. We will then delist PSG from the JSE. Shareholders, except the remaining shareholders, will vote on the transaction. However, it is important to note that steps one and two are linked, meaning shareholders need to approve both the unbundlings and the cash repurchase offer for the transaction to be implemented. To be clear, should the unbundlings be approved but not the repurchase, then the re proposed transaction will fail in that case. There are a number of steps to enable PSG Group to unbundle certain assets. Yesterday afternoon, Zeder announced that they will unbundle their investment in Copa Gri. PSG Group will, as a result, obtain 20.5% interest in Copa Gri. DePayo, our BE company, has informed us that they are intending to selling or distributing some of the assets to settle their PREF share funding. PSG Group is considering same, which may, might lead to PSG Group increasing its stake in Carpa Greed to 34.9%, which we will then unbundle to shareholders. CNANS, uh, towards the end of last year, they are listed just for the record on the Botswana Stock Exchange and the Cape Town Stock Exchange, have informed us about the intention to list on the JSE. 
I think that is fairly important given the unbundling uh, that shareholders would be able to easily trade in their shares. What does it mean for PSG shareholders? We've closed it off on Friday, the 25th of February, the calculation. At that stage, PSG was trading at 82.31. If you look at the value of the unbundled shares on a per share basis, it's about 91 rand per share. If you add the repurchase offer of 23, you get to a total offer to shareholders of 114 rand per share, which represents a premium to the share price of 38.4%. But given that the share prices of our underlying companies and PSG Group do not always move 100% in sync, we've included the 30-day VWAPs, 60-day and 90-day VWAPs, and have a look at what the different premiums is. And one can see on a 30-day VWAP, it's approximately 36%, 60-day, 32%, and on 90-day, a 34% premium. We feel we've always been transparent and focused on what is best for shareholders. One could argue that the best for myself and my management team is to sit back and maintain the status quo. Being remunerated while waiting for market sentiment to change. We do not believe this is the nature of PSG Group and the executives share that sentiment. Then I want to get to the next bullet. It's not been an easy decision to make, nor for the board, nor for the founding shareholders. As this is an end of an era which many people dedicated their lives to build PSG Group what it is today. I've mentioned it, I've grown up with PSG Group in the house. My sister once said, when we were having discussions at a Sunday braai, um, Dad, um, that's no Yanni, you know, you do have three other kids. The only thing you want to talk about is PSG. It's like it's by far your favorite kid. So for us, this is the end, and it wasn't taken lightly. However, we firmly believe that the value that we have created or that we can unlock in terms of the transaction is the right thing to do. Now on the companies we intend to unbundle, they all share the following attributes. They have exceptional management team and experienced boards. They are well-established businesses and each one of them is well capitalized. And for their organic growth plans and for the foreseeable future, they don't require additional capital from us. This also holds true for Stadio, but I'll get to them a little while later. The remaining shareholders have given the undertaking that they will now simply hold their shares directly in these companies and they intend to hold them. We are excited about the growth prospects and we believe in these businesses. The market must understand that they have been fundamental to what PSG is and we have no intention of selling. Furthermore, we've spoken to the companies we've unbundled and the PSG group and 
PSG Alpha Executive Directors will continue to serve in their respective existing capacity as non-executive directors of Consult, Kiro, CIS and Stadio. And Johan Leroux, the Zero CEO, will continue to serve on the board of Coop Agri post-unbundling. Following the share repurchase, PSG Group will be delisted. The unlisted PSG Group will retain the following investments. All the unlisted investments are remaining share in Stadio and 48.6% in Zeder. Why are we retaining the unlisted investments in PSG? Many of these companies are still in the early stage of their life cycle. It must be said that some of them over the years have disappointed and missed targets. This has not always been in control of management. For generally, for startups, uh, a low growth environment makes it significantly more difficult as people are less likely to go out of their normal way of doing business. Most of these businesses continue to require our strategic involvement and we must be ready to provide capital for growth if needed. From experience, we also know that in terms of early stage investments, some of the companies will make it, some of them will be okay, and others will simply fail. When PSG Group invested in these unlisted companies, we committed to assist them and guide them through strategic objectives to achieve their strategic objectives and to provide them with capital. We are not about to renege on this moral obligation. On Stadio, why are we retaining some of the stake? It's based purely on a commercial basis and where Stadio finds itself in its development phase. We believe Stadio has made great strides over the last five years and please remember this is still a very young company on delivering on their strategy. We are extremely proud of what the management team has achieved in this relatively short period. But please remember Stadio has undergone significant change as it went from a collection of standalone tertiary education brands to combining most of the operations under a single Stadio banner. Furthermore, the opening of the Centurion Mega Campus this year is a significant step change for them. The management team of PSG Alpha has from the outset been intricately involved in the formation and implementation of strategies at Stadio, as well as the identification of bolt-on acquisition. So given where Stadio is in its development phase, we firmly believe they will continue to benefit from the Big Brother effect of PSG Alpha's ongoing involvement. Um, and that essentially is our rationale on that one. On retaining our stake in Zero, following the unbundling of Coop Agreed that was announced yesterday, and the sale of TLG, uh, which shareholders vote on on the 15th of March, Zeder will essentially have three remaining investments worth approximately 3.6 billion. Considering the issues that investment holding companies have and 
we firmly believe that a new smaller zeder post Kaap Agri unbundling would not benefit from standing on its own. If we were to unbundle them, there would be significant downward pressure on this company, as it's different from the other businesses that we intend to unbundle. And we do not believe that's in the best interest of neither PSG nor the Zeder shareholders. Furthermore, when we internalized the management fee in 2016, PSG committed to the Zeder shareholders that we will continue to assist Zeder with its objective of maximizing shareholder value. We intend to honor this commitment. On increased trading liquidity, we firmly believe the companies that we unbundle will benefit from it. One can see that over a one-year period, Consult only has a 7% liquidity. Kiro, 13.3. Carp agree, 4%. CNS, okay, it needs to be taken account that the liquidity on the Cape Town Exchange and the Botswana Exchange is extremely low at 0 0.7 and Stadio at 10.9. So we're likely to see better trading in these companies and given where they are, the likelihood of being included in indices should increase significantly. Today is Wednesday, March 2nd, and this is your FT News Briefing. The company behind the Nord Stream 2 pipeline has reportedly become insolvent and China has shifted its stance on Russia's attack on Ukraine. Some analysts were speculating that Beijing was taken somewhat by surprise by Putin's actions last week. They're now scrambling to try and be a peacemaker in global politics. Plus, cryptocurrency exchanges are coming under pressure to shut down ties to Russia. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. The pipeline project built to pump Russian gas across the Baltic Sea into Europe could be dead. A Swiss official yesterday said employees of the company behind the Nord Stream 2 pipeline received termination notices. The company appears to be insolvent and is facing, quote, massive payment difficulties. This comes a little over a week after the U.S. Treasury issued a sanctions order against the pipeline. The FT's Sam Jones explains the significance of the pipeline's potential demise. Nord Stream 2 has really been a sort of centerpiece of the diplomatic discussion around deterrence and what Europe needs to do to stand up to Russia. This is a pipeline that is designed to, to bring Europe, uh, Russian gas to, to Europe uh, and to circumvent Ukraine in doing so. Uh, and so really in that sense to, to make Europe even more dependent, according to critics at least, on Russian gas. So, so when the whole discussion has, has heated up about uh, you know, how Europe uh, needs to take a bolder stance against Russia, Nord Stream 2 has really been at the centre of this kind of conflict between security concerns versus economic interests. So now with Nord Stream 2 potentially all but dead, uh, is the idea just to isolate Russia even more or can we see this just as a casualty of the conflict? Well, I mean, based 
not least on actions that Germany has taken. Uh, the pipeline comes into Germany, uh, where the government under Olaf Scholz has, has very recently declared that it won't certify the pipeline and therefore it won't be operable. We've known for the last few days that Nord Stream 2 is going nowhere. So this, in a sense, is more of a, a symbolic development, uh, but nevertheless, obviously, a, a very important one, because what it would appear to say is that this project is dead for good, whether the Germans certify it anytime soon or not. Will this have a lot of impact on energy markets, Sam? Yeah, I don't think this will have a huge impact on energy markets right now. I mean, obviously, most energy traders are looking specifically at, at the actual flows of, of gas and the likelihood about how they'll be uh, interrupted or not in the coming weeks or days. Uh, and so the fact that Nord Stream isn't coming online is not necessarily the, the biggest news. But the long term picture for prices uh, is, is, you know, is basically being confirmed as very different to, to what it would have been even a few weeks ago. Sam Jones is the FT's Austria and Switzerland correspondent. There has been a shift in China's stance towards Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Beijing initially didn't take sides, but yesterday it indicated it was ready to play a role in finding a ceasefire. Here's the FT's China correspondent Eleanor Olcott with more on this development. So Ukraine's foreign minister and China's foreign minister held a phone call on Tuesday where basically both sides agreed that China would establish a role trying to end the conflict through negotiations, that it would kind of take the, on the role of a, of a peacekeeper in resolving the conflict between um, Russia and Ukraine. And for the first time, we had this quite strong language from China condemning the conflict. It didn't use the word invasion as other countries have used to condemn Russia's actions, but it said it deplored the violence and suffering by civilians in, in Ukraine. So, Eleanor, how significant is this? Are these just empty words? This is important because China, while they have not said explicitly that they condemn Russia's actions, have previously been happy and willing to support uh, the Kremlin's line on this. Previously, the Chinese state media also said that Russia's invasion was just a series of military exercises. What we're seeing now is a recognition at the highest levels in China that there is a conflict going on and that it is the highest priority for Chinese officials to resolve this through negotiations. And it's also significant because it's the first indication we have from the Ukrainian side that they're leaning on, on its relationship with China to help them fast forward the uh, negotiations to end this conflict with Russia. Is there anything else that might be motivating Beijing to shift its position? China has come under a lot of criticism domestically for its failure to get its citizens out of Ukraine and particularly uh, a lot of Chinese students who have uh, doing their study abroad programs in Ukraine. And if you think about the fact that China um, in the weeks leading up to the invasion seemed complacent about the risk, what we've seen over the past few days is this kind of scrambling by Beijing both to get their citizens out and also to make sure that there's not a PR crisis domestically by the fact that you've got all of these, these people stuck in Ukraine. And in fact, I think Ukraine's managed to leverage its own position in, in helping these Chinese nationals to, to get out of Ukraine and buy some goodwill with China on that front. 
Eleanor Alcott is the FT's China correspondent. Cryptocurrency exchanges are coming under pressure from Western governments to block transactions with Russia. The concern among officials is that cryptocurrencies will allow Russians to avoid sanctions aimed at shutting the country out of the global financial system. To talk more about this, I'm joined by the FT's Josh Oliver. Hi, Josh. Hey, Mark. So, Josh, can you talk about how exactly Russians are using Bitcoin? Yeah, so what we've seen is that Russians are using not just Bitcoin, but all cryptocurrencies to basically convert their rubles into crypto. And that can serve as a way to hold on to the value of those assets when the ruble is in free fall. And it's also potentially a way to transfer money out of the country. So Josh, uh, going back to sanctions, is using Bitcoin a violation of sanctions or is it more like they're getting around the sanctions? It all depends on how you use Bitcoin. You know, there are ways that you could be using cryptocurrencies that do specifically violate sanctions. And what crypto exchanges have said is that they are intending to block specific violations of sanctions. But also what's happening, you know, in a more general sense is that there's a potential for crypto to be used as an alternate way to transact with Russia in a way that doesn't necessarily specifically violate the sanctions, but does undermine the effort to cut Russia off from the global financial system. So then what do Western powers want crypto exchanges to do right now? So yeah, a senior Ukrainian politician has sort of led the call here and called on all major crypto exchanges to cut Russia off across the board. In the West, you've seen politicians like Liz Truss and also American officials express concern that crypto could be used to evade sanctions. And so what people want to see is the crypto exchanges enforcing the sanctions, which they've said they intend to do. But also some people want to see them go further than the letter of the sanctions and cut off Russia altogether. But, you know, this kind of flies in the face of the philosophy that underpins cryptocurrency, right? I mean, this decentralized libertarian belief is the, is the thing that, that attracts people to it. Well, exactly. I mean, you could say that the, you know, the original purpose of cryptocurrency is for people to be able to transact without any kind of centralized authority or relying on banks or a financial system whatsoever. But the reality of crypto today is that most transactions are still going through centralized crypto exchanges who do have the power to make decisions about who's allowed to send money where. So if cryptocurrency exchanges don't follow the requests by Western governments, could they face penalties? If crypto exchanges are violating the sanctions, then they could see very severe penalties. And lawyers that we spoke to also point out that you know one thing about crypto is that it never forgets. I mean, those transactions are there, recorded on the blockchain for all to see. And in some cases, you know, investigations of crimes involving crypto across the board will come back to transactions years later and use that to track people down. So crypto exchanges are on the hook for any transactions that violate sanctions. What's a lot less clear is what consequences crypto exchanges could face in terms of allowing people to transact with Russia in a way that isn't specifically prohibited by the sanctions, but is still maybe contrary to what people would like to see them do. Joshua Oliver is the FT's asset management correspondent. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Mark. 
You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. If you aren't a subscriber yet, you can read our key Ukraine coverage for free. We've taken down the paywall there. Just visit FT.com slash free to read. Again, that's FT.com slash free to read. We'll also have a link to that in the show notes. This has been your daily FT news briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. That's it from the Biz News team this hour. Join us again tomorrow for your Power Hour. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.